Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for August 16th, 2020. I'm your host, David McLaughlin, and join me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, good to have you all on, and here in about 20 minutes, we're going to welcome one of our favorite and most frequent guests in the history of the Cudbine um, from public policy polling. Mr. Tom Jensen will be with us, and um, I think they've probably polled like 54, 57 states in our nation. Yes, I do know we have 50. <laughs> that's just, uh, you know, that's the old late days a week from the Beatles. Um, that's, that's how busy they've been. Uh, so we're going to ask Tom about a few of them at least. But until then, we've got more news than will fit into an hour to discuss. So let's just see what we can do. And um, we kind of had predicted it would be this week, given that next uh, tomorrow, next week is the convention. Um, but Kamala uh, Harris was the pick uh, for vice president. We had, I think, if I remember correctly, we had all bought on her as a presidential candidate. We had all three bought on her as a VP candidate. Um, at different times, uh, different people had said they were they felt she was the leading contender. Um, Catherine, your thoughts on Joe Biden's pick of uh, Senator from California, Kamala Harris? I think it was a great pick, I, and I think that the response shows how great a pick it was. They raised a lot of money over a couple of days. They, um, you know, all the candidates that were in the primary have um, come forward in support of her, as I think. I think they all have, all the ones I've seen. And um, I think she brings uh, some, you know, uh, energy and excitement to the campaign. She's a great speaker. She's... Um, you know, it's a historic pick, being um, black, a black and Indian, um, black and Indian background. So, I think I think it's great. I think it was a good pick. It was what what I hoped for. So I'm happy. How about you, Tim? Oh yeah, it, I, you know, it, a lot a lot of people described it as a safe pick. Uh, in a year when we are just begging for some stability. In this country, that that pick indicated stability in that ticket. Uh, so, you know, it was a smart pick. She checks off a lot of boxes, as Catherine mentioned. Uh, reaction to the pick has shown it to be a very popular pick, by and large. Uh, the the Republicans seem to stumble out of the gate a little bit with their reactions to it. Uh, of course, Trump stumbles over his tongue, no matter what he's talking about. But he he said he was actually surprised that 
Biden Victor. I, you know, I don't know what Rocky's been under or whatever. Pence called her a socialist. Of course, there's that stuff. The far left, Lottie died. Uh, overall, though, I'm uh, I'm 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 pretty happy with it. And one uh, bonus, uh, read a story this morning, guys, that. Um, a lot of folks down in Florida who are from the Caribbean are very, very excited about this. And there are hundreds of thousands, possibly, of voters down there uh, of Caribbean descent from Miami all the way up to Orlando. Uh, something like that could really swing that state strongly in our favor. So. Yep, and when it comes to elections, it's like the Depeche Mode song, Everything Counts in Large Amounts. Um, that could count uh-huh. the fact that her uh, Indian American um, heritage from her mother's uh, side of the family, um, you know, could pay dividends. Um, and I, I think that's something that people don't realize as much, that don't know as much about her. But she was raised much more by her mother uh, than her father because they were divorced early in her and her sister's um, mm-hmm. childhood. Um, but, you know, I think mm-hmm. I told you all this. This was kind of a chalk pick. And, and if you don't know what that term means, um, when there's a sports tournament, often basketball, if things go according to plan, the higher seed wins, wins they call it chalk. And, um, you know, yep. I think early on, I think I told you all that I, I felt, and this is when there were still like 20 candidates in the race for president, that I felt either better O'Rourke or Kamala Harris would be on the ticket. I could have seen that even being the ticket. Now, I was pretty wrong about Beto O'Rourke, but Kamala Harris did end up being on the ticket. I mean, she she just made a lot of sense. I mean, she was always, when they had the rankings, she was always number one in, you know, Chris Cazilla or whoever's VP rankings. Um, And I guess sometimes because these picks aren't chalk, they, you know, want to, you know, create us some buzz or make a splash, and they, they do something different that's unexpected, That that's why I guess people sort of doubt the expected. But in this case, that wasn't what Joe Biden needed. Um, he has the lead. He's had the lead so long. So um, why not go with something that makes sense? Someone that has had some vetting because she ran for president so long, you assume that she's been vetted far more than a lot of the other candidates um, that were considered had been. Um, you know, she does have some strengths. She's going to understand the Justice Department very well. Um, she's going to, you know, understand the Senate. She will pre- preside over the Senate, although that's also one of Joe Biden's strengths because he came from the Senate as well. Um, and so, you know, we'll have that to go. Uh, as far as, like, winning a new state, if you will, now she, being from California – doesn't add that to the ticket, but that may not be as necessary as just being dynamic and going to new places because mm-hmm. Joe Biden did pretty well in Michigan when Kamala Harris campaigned for him, and Michigan's pretty daggum important um, in, in this election. Yeah. Um, we know that I think I sent y'all something, and Catherine, I'm going to get your thoughts on it first. There were um, a list of the most important speeches of the convention. Kamala Harris' speech was listed actually ahead of Joe Biden. Any thoughts on why uh, Chris Cazilla of CNN rated it that way? Oh, yeah. I just think we've all heard 
um, from Joe Biden for a long time. And he's not as exciting a speaker. I mean, he's fine. He's, you know, competent and sometimes enthusiastic, but she's much livelier. And I think she has to sort of um, not prove herself, but uh, sort of put a stake in the ground. Like, this is me. This is what I'm going to, this is how I'm going to be. And these are the things that are important to me. And uh, so I think that that made sense to me, that, the, that list. Yeah, and Joe Biden was number two on that list. Um, Tim, your thoughts on moving forward with Kamala Harris, not only the speech, but anything from here through November 3rd with the pick? Well, I'm 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 obviously very delighted with the pick. Not only, uh, you know, I mentioned Florida, but then then we turn northward to Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, and with an African American vote that basically did not show up to vote four years ago, it, this not only energizes African Americans; it energizes. African-American women in particular who are strong supporters of Joe Biden to start with, and they really should vote in record numbers. And if they do that, I, it's, it's going to be hard for Donald Trump to hang on to those three states. I'll tell you something else, too. Mike Pence, when he was making his little talk about Kamala Harris and calling her a socialist and this and the other. He also said, "Well, we'll we'll see you on October seventh. Well, you know, I can't speak for Kamala Harris, uh, Kamala Harris, but I, I imagine she'll show up for that debate, uh, and and he's going to have his hands full with her. He's going to oh, see yeah. that. Uh, she she is a she she is a tiger in the cage. She's she she has shown herself in those Senate committees to know exactly what she's doing, to know exactly what she's about. She put it to people like Barr. Uh, she put it to people like Kavanaugh. Uh, she she knows what to do. She knows what to say. And uh, I, I look very forward to her uh, along the campaign trail. She's she's going to be terrific uh, for Biden. And one more thing, that list. That you mentioned, David. I think uh, yes. she was number one on it because it's a rollout for her. Don't you think? It's an introduction for her to the country. Um, so of course, yeah, I do think. I mean, the most white. Yeah, I don't think it's in the vein of um, when Sarah Palin was the most looked toward no, speaker. Because that, we're like, we don't know what we're going to get. You know what you're going to get. It more. I will tell you. Speaking of that list. Um, a speech I thought probably should have been on it, and we're going to segue over to the convention. I thought John Kasich's speech should have been on there, not because, I mean, me as a Democrat, I'm not like super looking forward to the great speaking abilities of John Kasich. But one theme of this campaign is there is a segment of Republicans that feel very uncomfortable with Donald Trump as president and what he would do with the second term. And can John Kasich in this speech with him volunteering to come speak at the Democratic Convention, endorse Joe Biden um, as a longtime Republican, can he cleave off more um, Republican voters 
um, and a lot of these states. And that's why I thought that was a speech I might have put on more so than a few others. I mean, of course, I'm going to leave Barack Obama. I'm going to leave the ticket as well. So I guess that only leaves the Hillary Clinton and uh, 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 Astacio Cortez speeches. But that's why I thought that was intriguing. Uh, Catherine, just looking at the convention, what are some things you're thinking about? Well, I certainly wish John Kasich was not speaking. I think. Well, that, I mean, don't I you see the value the of him? No, I don't see the value. Pulling over Republicans? I don't see the value. No, I don't see the value of him at the convention. He can He's be endorsing Joe Biden. The Democratic National Convention. He's a extremely conservative Republican. No, I don't think he should be on that stage. I really don't. It really makes me angry. Um, well, you mean on Zoom? It'll be virtual somewhere. <laughs> I don't know if there'll well, be a stage. Gonna, I mean, he's gonna—it's a stage. It's a national stage of uh, for, of the Democratic National Committee, National Convention. It might not be an, a, a physical stage, but it is a stage, and, he, and we're giving him room on that stage, and I don't like it one bit. Um, but I, I think there was there are some interesting things. I thought there were some. Uh, mistakes, but I've, they've sort of fixed that up a little bit. There were um, no LGBTQ uh, represent, representation on that list at all until now. Sam Park from Georgia oh. is going to be on on one. Mayor of the night. Pete Buttigieg was a speaker early on. He's Mayor not, Pete, he was he, speaker. He's not on the list that I saw. He said he, oh, the other night on Bill Maher, he was he was going to be a speaker, Mayor Pete. Right, right, but he has he was not on the the official first list. Okay. I mean, I've looked at it a number of times, so I thought that was a little bit of a mistake. Um, I thought it's a little old. I mean, we have AOC and some of the you know candidates. I guess Andrew Yang and Pete Buttigieg are still going to be on, but uh, a lot of the speakers are older and you know that's fine i'm not i'm not really complaining about that i'm just saying that that's a maybe may a missed opportunity but i mean i think it's going to be great that they, they, you know we're going to have some really good speechifying and i think they're going to be very short speeches um i heard like one to two minutes because i don't think people are going to have the patience because we aren't going to have all the excitement of the convention to sort of um, back it up. You know, usually we have like all the cheering and the balloons and the, you know, they go from state to state and show everybody, but we're not going to have any of that. So I think we're going to see some short speeches, but I think it's going to be exciting. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Tim, I don't know if you watch the um, graduate together. The the graduation special that happened in late May, and it had LeBron James opening it and had Barack Obama giving a commencement speech, yeah. and it had some singers and all. And Barack Obama's speech was very good, but the rest of it, and they had professional people doing this thing, but it, it just didn't have a lot of excitement. I think this format, and the Republicans are going to suffer in the same way, although they get to look at the Democrats and possibly fix it. Although I kind of question their judgment sometimes, um, I, I think it is going to be a little lackluster, and it's something that no one can do anything about. Uh, what's your th- feeling? 
Yeah, there's not going to be any surprises, for one thing, that you always seem to see on the convention floor. It's not a big conflict. You're not going to see any of that. You're not going to see the excitement that comes with the crowd. And by the way, on the speeches, on, on, on Chris Cazillo's list, make the top five. Now, that's one thing I disagreed with. Well, Obama didn't. The top okay, he must have revised his list because when I saw okay. the list, it was it Obama was third, Ocasio Cortez was fourth, and Hillary Clinton was fifth. So the list no, I did see did not include. Casey. I'm looking. I'm looking at it now. Bernie Sanders is third. And okay. Ocasio Cortez fourth, and and then Hillary Clinton fifth. I would have yeah. either one slot. For either Michelle or Barack Obama, one or the other is going to hit it out of the park. One of them yep, always does, and yeah. then I would reserve that slot from for the what I like to call the unknown breakout speech. There's always a breakout speech. Man, here comes a star like Barack Obama in 2004, just electrified the crowd. Uh, Mario Cuomo, yeah, back in the 80s at the Democratic oh, yeah, Convention, oh just stood it on its ear. You know, there's that always one of those. Speech. Yeah, and there's the always one of those. In 84. And yeah. so, are we going to hear that in this format? Is my question. Well, I am. It's going to be hard, and I'll still say this. I think there's a good chance that the the two people that have been the best political speakers uh, over the past thirty years may give the two best speeches. I mean, Barack Obama and Bill Clinton might have the best two speeches, better than um, uh, Joe Biden, better than Kamala Harris. Another person I think that will be a good speech because she will endear herself to a lot of new voters if she introduces herself. I think Dr. Joe Biden is going to be a breakout star of this convention. Last week, I don't know if y'all saw the um, special or the segment that CBS Sunday Morning did on her, uh, but my wife and I had watched it. My wife had never, you know, really knew nothing about Jill Biden, and she was, like, so impressed. Like, I really like her. And and I Mm -hmm. think people are going to have the same reaction when they hear more about how authentic and how – I mean, she still teaches at community college – and taught all through being second lady and plans to still teach as first lady, I think that may end up being more of a hybrid where she has one class and they have someone to do it with her. But that's still a connection to the people, and it's a community college. It's not Princeton or Yale or, you know, wherever. It's a very just of the people kind of college, and I think she may end up being kind of a breakout um, uh, of this convention. What do you think, uh, Catherine, when people get to know more about uh, Jill Biden? Oh, I think she's fantastic. And I think a lot of people, well, maybe not, maybe I'm in my bubble, because I, I do think she's pretty well known. But, but um, yeah, she's great, and, and she's a good speaker, too. Um, and she has a very um, warm and uh, kind demeanor. She's very uh, like friendly, and I think that will play well for this, especially in this environment. Um, I, I, you know, they just added Stacey Abrams too, so we'll see how she does. 
that was just added to, announced today. So I can't remember yeah, what night. And I do think that. And I do think this, like you mentioned, one-minute speeches. And I, I noticed one of the networks, I believe it was CBS, is going to have um, 10 to 11 o'clock coverage, although in today's media environment, if you want to watch this thing starting at 7, you can log on online. You can turn in, tune in to uh, CNN, NMSNBC. Um, unfortunately, America's number one network, as we learned uh, Fox News, which that's a whole other topic. But right now, we're going to get into some more numbers, some polling numbers, with a longtime contributor to the uh, Kudzu Vine. Welcome back, Tom Jensen. Hey, good to be with you all. All right, good to have you back. Well, um, Tom, from the start of the show, I said, you know, you've probably polled on like 57, 58 states uh, this time. There's so many good races. Um but we can't ask you about all of them, so we're kind of going to get into it. And I wanted to start off not just with the actual poll, but we'll get there. But about three weeks ago, Election Twitter, and that's, I guess, the name they give themselves, a collection of, of folks that are really politically active, several of them that are, have been on our show recently, Chris Leoncheck, Miles Coleman, um, I, I don't want to forget anybody, so I'll stop with just those two. Um, they've been on the show, and they crowdfunded a poll. They chose your firm to do this poll of Alaska. Uh, what were your thoughts on just that project in general? Well, we uh, we actually aren't really available to be hired for crowdfunded polls, Uh so they started doing the GoFundMe for the Alaska poll without asking us or anything, and I didn't want to uh, dampen the spirit too much. So what we ended up saying was if you can raise the money for the poll, you can give it to charity, and we'll just do the poll for free. Uh, so that sort of got us out of the situation where we can't really be doing crowdfunded polls, and the poll still got done, and some charities in Alaska and then eventually Montana as well ended up benefiting from all their crowdfunded efforts. So I sort of felt like it turned into a good kind of win-win-win situation for all parties involved. Well, good deal. That's, that's good to hear how that enveloped. And I don't know if I missed that part of the Twitter because they were so excited about the numbers you got. But that, that's great that charities won out and we got some good information about Alaska and then I guess later Montana. Um, well, let's yep. get into the Alaska numbers. Um, it, it was, I guess, I forgot if they were trying to pull the Senate race most and then also got the presidential and the House race, um, but, but I think it was the Senate race. Uh, that showed that the independent Dr. Gross, I guess Al Gross, um, is yep. running very competitive against the incumbent there. He is. Uh, so that definitely, as you said, what they were most interested in was seeing how the Alaska Senate race was sort of coming out because there hadn't been a single publicly released poll there the entire cycle. And people sort of had a feeling like it could potentially be competitive, but uh, obviously wanted to see some actual data on that to confirm or not confirm. And we did find that the Republican incumbent, Dan Sullivan, only had a five-point lead. And more than that, he was only polling around 40%. There was a high level of undecideds uh, in that particular race. 
And one thing that was interesting was Al Gross didn't have terribly high name recognition, but among people who had heard of him, whether they like him or not, he was actually beating Dan Sullivan. So one thing that was a real takeaway from the poll was that if Al Gross had the resources to really become a household name in Alaska more so than he is now, that would really give him a chance to potentially make the race competitive and uh, potentially give the Democratic caucus a senator from somewhere that, uh, for the most part, you really wouldn't expect to have one, uh, even though he is an independent, he would caucus with the Democrats. And uh, the other interesting piece of that was that Dan Sullivan, the Republican incumbent, has a negative approval rating. More people dislike him than like him. So for a few different reasons, that poll ended up suggesting that Alaska at least could be competitive. It would probably be the 53rd or 54th Senate seat that Democrats ended up winning. But sometimes if you have a big wave election year, you end up winning some pretty crazy places. And in fact, the last time Democrats had a big year in a presidential year, 2008, they did pick up a Senate seat in Alaska, this very seat. And then they lost it in 2014 in the midterm. But uh, there's some precedent for them maybe being able to get it back. Yes. Um, well, let me ask you another question just about Alaska in general. Um, my, our Alaska uh, geographic expert, Tim, kind of informed us that a large percentage of that vote is in one city, I guess, Anchorage. Kind of tell us, like, how do you win the largest land-sized state in the country? <laughs> uh, well, I think there's a couple big things that are going on. One is that uh, for a Democrat to win in Alaska, they have to do very well with the Native American vote, uh, which I think in a lot of cases is the sort of more rural parts of the state where Democrats have the opportunity for success. Uh, and to Tim's point about Anchorage, so many of the places where Democrats are trying to compete this year uh, that they haven't won in the past, we say, well, Democrats are going to have to do really well in the Atlanta suburbs. Democrats are going to have to do really well in the Houston suburbs, those kinds of things. They're also going to have to do really well in the Anchorage suburbs. Uh, we don't usually think of Anchorage as being some huge city whose suburbs are politically influential in the way that we might think about that for big states like Georgia and Texas. But uh, if Democrats are going to win the Senate seat, and I actually think Democrats have an even better chance in Alaska of winning the House seat this year, uh, it's definitely going to come from uh, flipping some people who have usually voted Republican in Metro Anchorage uh, to voting Democratic this time around, just like we've been seeing uh, in some of the big suburban areas on the mainland. All right. Well, you're moving this thing along. Uh, Don Young, uh, he's, I believe, the longest-serving member of the House now. He's in trouble. Tell us more. Yeah, we actually found him slightly behind the independent candidate who is the de facto Democratic candidate, Elise Galvin. Uh, she was up by a couple points in the poll, and she ran in 2018 and got within 53-47 in the House race, which is the closest it had been in a long time. Uh, and this time around, she's become better known from running the first time. Don Young uh, has had some comments about COVID that I think have made him look a little out of touch. Um so we did find, even though Galvin was up by a couple points, that most of the undecideds were Republican-leaning, and maybe they'll end up going to Don Young in the end, as they have been for, as you know, the last 40 to 50 years. Uh, hmm. But uh, certainly the potential for competitiveness there 
uh, in a way that we have not seen in an Alaska house race in a long time. Well, it sounds like the secret is to run as an independent and then um, not have the Democrat in the field and caucus with the Democrats. So I guess Joe Biden is running as an independent in Alaska, and I guess we need to know how he's doing. (laughs) So we found him on that poll within about three points, and then we did another poll in Alaska actually later in the month, and that one had Biden down by six points. But uh, even being down by three to six points would be the best performance that a Democratic presidential candidates had in Alaska in decades. And we saw a similar story to that recently on a poll in Kansas. Some of these red states are traditionally red states. Biden might not necessarily end up winning them, uh, but he's definitely in position to have the best Democratic performance in a good 40-plus years. Uh, so even if he doesn't actually end up getting Alaska's electoral votes, doesn't actually end up getting Kansas's electoral votes, it's still a good sign about his overall standing that he's coming closer than uh, Barack Obama or even Bill Clinton did when they were running. Yes. Well, Tom, I think you're reading my notes if I had some, because the very next state and my last state I'm going to ask before I pass it to Catherine Tim is the state of Kansas. I'm sure you polled the presidential race, so you can tell us about that. But the Senate race there, we had been told if Chris Kovacs was the nominee that that thing um, would be in play, he didn't win the nomination, but it still seems like a uh, state of interest. What did you find there? Yeah, we found that the Democratic candidate, Barbara Bully, is only down by one point to the uh, Republican nominee, Roger Marshall. And a lot of people said, oh, this is crazy. And it just happened that election Twitter was getting another poll through SurveyUSA of uh, Kansas this last week. And people said, well, you know, that'll be the nonpartisan poll. We'll get to see what it really is. Uh, and then they had Bully down to Marshall by just two points. So they found Uh, Almost the exact same thing we did. Uh, And the thing is that Republican primary, even though Roger Marshall ended up surviving it and winning the nomination, it did really hurt his standing. I mean, for one thing, he had to sort of veer out far to the right uh, to sort of make sure that Kobach didn't beat him on that ideological front. Uh, And there was also just in general a lot of negativity that I think hurt his standing We had done a poll in March that found Roger Marshall up by 10 points on Barbara Bollier. So uh, definitely something where we saw the race tighten considerably over the last five months. And the the piece of it that's kind of interesting is if Democrats were somehow going to win a Senate race in Kansas, the way they would need to do it is to get a lot of Republicans in the suburbs, uh, people who have voted Republican all their lives, who are disgusted with Trump to vote Democratic when they've never voted Democratic before. Uh, And the interesting thing is that Barbara Bollier, the Democratic candidate, is one of those voters. She was a Republican state senator, Republican all her life. She got so disgusted with the Republican Party and the age of Trump that she became a Democrat and decided to run for the Senate as a Democrat. So the sort of path she needs to get voters on in order to win is a path that she can identify with in a way that no other candidate really could have. So uh, I think she's a very strong candidate, and certainly Kansas is an uphill climb, but it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. 
Yes. Well, I'm going to pass this thing to Catherine, and I would let you guess what state she's going to ask about, but you know, we don't want to bore you with that. So, Catherine, uh, take it away. I'm sorry. I had you on mute. You know, all these virtual meetings and everything, we're all, like, on mute and forget to turn it back on. <laughs> um <laughs> Um, I want, of course, I want to ask about Michigan because it finally uh, appears to be back on our side again. At least it looks that it's looking that way, and that's a relief for me. So I, I know you did a poll. It's been a little while, but hopefully it's still somewhat, you know, valid. Um, so what's the, what's the scoop there? Do we think Gretchen well, Whitmer is still really popular? Because I know she was in your last poll, but she's lost a little luster, I think. But yeah, what do you think? Well, I, I think it's I think it's uh, it's telling that you ask. Uh, you know, even though it's been a little while, do you think anything's changed? Because one thing that's been interesting about our Michigan polling over the last four or five months, and we've done a lot of it, is that it's been incredibly consistent. Uh, we pretty much always find Joe Biden up by six or seven points in Michigan. So we're a little bit more moderate on Biden's uh, margin in Michigan than some polls have been because some have come out showing him up by double digits. But uh, we've very consistently been in that six or seven point range. And, uh, you know, Governor Whitmer, we tended to find with about a plus 20 or so approval rating. And again, there have been some polls that have shown it a lot loftier than that. I think we're finding fewer Republicans who like Whitmer than some of the other polls are. Uh, But for her to even be at a plus 20 net approval rating in Michigan, a state obviously that uh, was effectively a tie in 2016, that means that she's got everybody who voted for Clinton in her corner, and she's got some share of Trump voters who like the job that she's doing too. It may not be a huge amount, but in this day and age, if you can get any sort of crossover support, uh, that puts you ahead of the curve. And uh, Trump's numbers are not good in Michigan either. They're probably not getting better, I would imagine. No, he's definitely been consistently down six or seven. And the thing that's interesting about being down by six or seven compared to this time four years ago so let's say let's just say that Biden's up by six in Michigan, and let's say that Hillary was up by six in Michigan at this time four years ago, which she wasn't necessarily, but let's just say that she was for the sake of this exercise. If Hillary was up by six points on August sixteenth, two thousand sixteen, in Michigan, it would have been forty-four to thirty-eight, and you would have had eighteen percent of people saying that they were undecided or that they planned to vote third party. When Biden has a six-point lead in Michigan in August of 2020, he's up 50 to 44, and almost nobody's undecided or planning to vote for third party. And that is one of the biggest differences between sort of the solidness of Biden's lead and the solidness of Clinton's lead is that in 2016, there were all these people who didn't really know how they were going to vote, and there was always a possibility that if they ended up going strongly in one direction or the other – that could end up putting the state in Trump's column. And that is indeed what ended up happening, that most of the people who were undecided were Republican-leaning voters who didn't really like Trump. And at the end of the day, they decided they might not like Trump, but they liked him better than Hillary. 
this time around, there just aren't very many undecided voters. So if Biden's up 50 to 44 in Michigan, the only way that he loses, if the poll's right, is if 100 percent of the undecideds end up voting for Trump. That's not very likely. There's, there's no indication when we look at who the undecideds are that that would happen. It's sort of a, a mixed bag of people that you wouldn't really expect to end up going strongly one way or the other. So that's one reason why I feel a lot more solid about Biden than I probably ever did about Clinton is that even if at some times and in some places their margins are similar in the polls to what they were four years ago, there's so many fewer undecided so much earlier this year that it makes it a lot less likely that Trump can make a comeback again. And are you mm. seeing that sort of across the board or just in Michigan or, or is that? Like, yeah, no, is that, 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 I, I'm just, I'm just using Michigan to exemplify the trend, but it's something that we're seeing everywhere. Well, that's great news. I like to hear that. Okay, now we're going to go to Georgia in our crazy, crazy Senate races. I finally, I knew there were a whole bunch of people running for that Loeffler seat, but I didn't realize how many until someone sent me the list yesterday and it's just ridiculous but what what are you seeing uh in georgia so right now what we're seeing in that senate race is that lawful excuse me that collins and lawful are actually running first and second so when we put out a poll like that all these people will say oh democrats are going to get shut out of the general election Democrats are not going to get shut out of the general election. Right now, both the Republican candidates have a higher profile than either than any of the Democratic candidates. So the Republicans, whether it is for Collins or Loeffler, already know who they're voting for. So when we do a poll, they pick one of those two. But the Democrats don't know who their candidates are yet. So they tend to say that they're undecided. And even though the whole party establishment has sort of lined up behind Reverend Warnock, uh, I don't think that his sort of visibility has really broken through to average voters yet, but it will between now and November. And I'm pretty confident that at the end of the day, uh, he'll definitely finish in the top two. And I actually would not be at all surprised if he ends up finishing first, certainly still short of 50% and will go to a runoff. But I could see him ending up first because I think when it's all said and done, that Democrats are going to be more committed to Warnock over Lieberman and the other candidates uh, than Republicans are going to be between either Collins or Loeffler. I think it's going to end up being pretty close between the two of them on who Republicans want more, whereas I think at the end of the day, Democrats are going to want Warnock a lot more. So that's sort of maybe that's an outside-the-box prediction I'll make is that Warnock ends up finishing first in round one of that Senate race, and then in the runoff, who the heck knows what will happen. (laughs) (laughs) And how about the other Senate race? Well, I think it's really a toss-up. We've done two or three polls of it over the summer, and Purdue and Ossoff have always been within a couple points of each other. Uh, I definitely could see a world where Ossoff – finishes first, but that that one ends up in a runoff, too, that you maybe have Ossoff 49, Purdue 48, other people on the ballot three, so Georgia ends up having two uh, sort of second runs of the Senate race. 
there must is there there must be is there a liber there's a libertarian on their ticket. Yeah, I think that I think you have a good I think you have a good possibility of a similar thing to what happened in 2008 with that Senate race. And then the big question, you know, in 2008, uh, Jim Martin lost to Saxby Chambliss by, I think, four points in round one, but then lost by 14 points in round two because Democrats had won the White House and they had increased their majority in the Senate. And there just wasn't that strong of a sense of urgency about coming out to vote in that election, which that year was uh, in December. So Jim Martin ended up getting blown out in round two. And we even sort of saw that dynamic in the Secretary of State's race uh, just two years ago, where uh, round one was kind of a tie. And then I think the Republican ended up winning the runoff by four points. It wasn't as dramatic of a shift as we had seen in 2008, but still the the electorate for that sort of oddly timed election ended up being better news for Republicans than Democrats. So it'll be interesting to see, let's say that Biden wins, and let's say that Democrats have already clinched control of the Senate, which I do think will be the case. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if Democrats can get their people motivated to go out and vote in that Georgia runoff and try to add to that Senate majority or if once Democrats have won the presidency and won at least narrow control of the Senate, if there's just not that sense of urgency and you see maybe Ossoff win round one, but Purdue win round two or something like that. Yeah, we're not, the Democrats in Georgia are not very good about runoffs. And some of us have a lot of elections coming up. I live in the fifth district, <laughs> so I've got a, I'm voting on uh, September 29th. And then, yeah. November and then the runoff from September 29th and then uh, <laughs> unlikely, but there could be, yes. Anyway, there's a lot of, there's going to be a lot of elections for some of us. In Georgia. When, when, when would your runoff from September 29th be? Like January. Oh, Oh, December 1st. So whoever okay. wins that, Good grief. whoever wins that to, to serve for a month. Yeah, but it's Christmas break, holiday break. <laughs> so they'll, as I said, they'll be there in time to go to the Christmas parties, and that's it. So. Well, hopefully it'll be a good life experience. Yes, and they can all put it on their resumes, and then they can say when they run again that they they want to be reelected. Yeah, <laughs> unless Nakima's there for thirty years, which seems like she yeah. could be. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going to pass it to Tim. Thanks so much, Tom. We we just love having you on the show. Sure. Yeah, they can speak for themselves about whether we love you or not, Tom. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. You know, I'm kidding. You're an ACC fan, by the way. I'm not going this year, buddy. I I, I took option C, which is to go ahead and reserve you seats for next year, and they've already got my money. And I know you're over in Raleigh now, or I imagine you've already moved. And you probably can't yeah, go to any games either, I, can you? Well, I don't think there's – they can still say they're going to try to get some fans in the game. So I, I think at the end of the day that's not going to happen. But we'll we'll see. Yeah. I, I don't see how it's possible in bleacher seating, but that's just me. <laughs> any rate, let's just stay. Let's just stay in North Carolina. Uh, 
your senator, I, I have a feeling that he would be doing poorly even if Donald Trump was not at the top of the ticket and it was a presidential election year where Trump's not running well either. I, I don't think Tillis is really that tied. His problems are that tied to the problems of the president there. Am I correct in thinking that? I think you are, and I actually am not sure I would have agreed with you on that premise six months ago, but it has just become increasingly clear that people just do not like Tom Tillis. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure I said on this show at some point in the past that I didn't think it was very likely that the Senate race and the presidential race in North Carolina would separate from each other by more than about a couple points. But we're now mm-hmm. consistently seeing Cal Cunningham doing six or seven points better against Tom Tillis than Joe Biden's doing against Donald Trump. And I, I, I'll say – I still I still expect the Senate race to tighten up because most of the undecided voters are Republicans who don't like Tillis, and I think those Republicans who don't like Tillis will still end up voting for him at the end of the day. But as I've said mm-hmm. to some of my clients, I'm starting to open my mind to the possibility that Cunningham is actually just going to kick Tillis's butt, which I would not have thought – was possible six mm. months ago, but we do a North Carolina it, poll every week, and it, it usually doesn't get released. Uh, but we've had Tillis, uh, Tillis down by six to nine points or so for just months on end now, polling it every week. Uh, so it, it's been kind well, of amazing to me what's ended well, up well, happening. Well, what, what is it? The empty suit effect, or, or, or what is it about the senator that voters don't care for? Well, I think they never liked him from day one. You know, uh-huh. he, he, he got he got elected in 2014 because voters didn't like Kay Hagan. They didn't like him either, but it was a Republican year. So if you didn't like either candidate, you were going to vote Republican in a Republican year. And even then, Tillis only won by two uh, in those circumstances. It really, for a Republican in North Carolina in 2014, that was kind of a weak performance for Tillis. So... They didn't like him from day one, and then he hadn't done anything to make anybody feel any different about that. But I think if there's one little episode that sums up Tillis's entire term, it's that last uh, winter when Trump wants the emergency declaration at the border, Tillis says, no, we're not – I'm against that. He writes an op-ed in the Washington Post saying he's against Trump on Trump's emergency declaration at the border. Well <laughs> – the, the fallout from that is immediate and very angry, and Tillis, who's always been like 30 approved, 35 disapproved, 35 no opinion, all of a sudden goes from 30 approved, 35 disapproved to 25 approved, 55 disapproved. He, has a, he goes from like minus 5 to minus 30, 25 point net downward shift in his approval rating, and people ask all the time, well, why don't more Republicans stand up to Donald Trump? There's your answer right there because his numbers completely fell apart with the Republican base, and it's not like he had any increase with Democratic voters after he stood up to Trump on that. And I don't fault Democratic voters for that. It's like, well, 99 times you stood by him and you want us to like you all of a sudden because you did something right once. But Republicans, on the other hand, don't care if you stood with Trump 99 times. The one time you didn't stand with him, that's unacceptable, and all of a sudden your numbers start falling apart. So oh. a week later, 
a week later, Tillis says, oh, never mind. I'll support Trump on that. So now you've just made yourself look like you have absolutely no principles whatsoever, and it makes Democrats think that you're just a total uh, sort of lapdog. And then the Republicans the Republicans came back a little bit, but the Republicans still don't trust him after that because he went against Trump for a week before he changed his mind. So that whole episode, I think, sort of shows why Democrats think he has no principles whatsoever, and Republicans still just aren't sure that he's quite supportive enough of Trump. And let me tell you, Democrats in 2016 won two top-tier Senate races. In Nevada, Catherine Cortez Masto won the open seat to replace Harry Reid, and in New Hampshire, uh, Maggie Hassan beat Kelly Ayotte. In both of those Senate races, Republican voters didn't think that the Republican senator was supportive enough of Trump, and the Republicans ended up losing. Tillis has part of the same problem. Wow. Well, now, let's go right next door to the good old upstate down there. Uh, Lindsey Graham doesn't have that particular problem that you just mentioned. I do know he has a well-funded, articulate opponent in Jamie Harrison. Every time I've seen him on television, been very impressed with him. But Lindsey Graham doesn't have that problem with with uh, Trump. But you showed the race tightening, but but it's South Carolina. I understand. I understand that landslides don't stop at state lines, but. Uh, is an upset a realistic hope in that race? Well, uh, earlier in the year, we had Jamie Harrison trailing Lindsey Graham by about seven or eight points. And now uh-huh. he's got it down to three. And mm-hmm. uh, there was also a Quinnipiac poll a couple weeks ago that actually had it tied. So mm-hmm. I do think that the race is tightening up. The question in South Carolina, and this applies to Georgia to some extent as well, is that any time you have a state where about 30% of the vote is African-American, that means that the Democrat, for the most part, is guaranteed to get 44 or 45%, since the African-American vote is almost monolithically Democratic. The question then is whether you can get enough white voters to find yourself a path from that 44 or 45% that you're almost guaranteed to get up to the 49 or 50 percent that you need. Uh, and we obviously saw, for instance, in 2018 that Stacey Abrams almost got there in Georgia but couldn't quite. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see if it's a similar sort of dynamic in South Carolina. But one thing I will say on the front of the Democratic candidate needing to do better with white voters than they historically have is that, for instance, uh, Mark Sanford's old congressional district in 2018 went to Joe Cunningham, because a Democrat, because white voters in the Charleston suburbs really rallied around him and started voting Democratic, who maybe had not done so in a very long time. Uh, and if those same kinds of voters go over to Jamie Harrison, it could end up being close. And uh, one thing that's a positive for Democrats in South Carolina as compared to Georgia is there's a couple uh, third-party candidates on the ballot if Jamie Harrison ended up somehow winning 48 to 47 and 5% of people voted for those third-party candidates, Jamie Harrison's the senator. It's not a situation like Georgia where he actually has to get 50 plus one. And I think it's a lot easier for a Democrat in a state like South Carolina or Georgia 
to win by getting a 48% plurality than to actually getting an outright majority and not having to worry about a potential second election where turnout possibly could be a lot lower than in the first election, uh, I think is something that does give Democrats a little bit more of a flavor of hope in South Carolina than they'd have otherwise. Yeah, I wish we had that sort of thing here like we used to have years ago. Ask you about one more guy because I really do like Steve Bullock. I've always liked him. Now you got a poll out that shows him up a couple of uh, points in the Senate race over uh, Senator uh, Daines, but at the same time, Trump is winning like nine points. Uh, do you think Montana voters are willing to split their votes like that? Well, I do. Uh, I mean, we saw that two years ago, for instance, John Tester was able to get reelected to his Senate seat, and he's, uh, he got reelected the first time in 2012. And when he got reelected in 2012, the state was simultaneously voting for Mitt Romney by about 10 points. So you had mm-hmm. just enough people splitting their tickets that Tester was able to get across the finish line. But something that I think does speak to how difficult this race is for Bullock is that he's by far and away the state's most popular politician. When you look at approval ratings, he runs well ahead of Steve Daines. But even with that, he only has the slightest of leads in the Senate race because there's plenty of people who like Bullock and especially think that he's done a good job handling COVID in the state, but they're just not going to vote for a Democrat for the Senate, uh, no matter how much they might personally like the candidate. And another thing from that poll that we did just point out as a caveat is that almost all of the undecided voters are Republicans. Uh, And Mm -hmm. that is people who maybe both like Bullock and Dane, so they're unsure. If you're a Democrat and you like both Bullock and Danes, that's not a hard call for you. You're voting for Bullock. If you're a Republican and you like both Bullock and Danes, you might be undecided right now. But I think a lot of the time those folks sort of end up voting Republican in the end. So uh, my my prediction on that race is that whoever wins it, and I think it's as 50-50 as it could possibly be, but I think whoever wins it very well is going to win it by less than a point. Uh, I bet we will not know for several days after Election Day who won because something interesting that happened in that tester race in 2018 was that on election night, eastern Montana, which is a lot more Republican, counted all its vote a lot more quickly than western Montana is, which is where the Democratic strength is. And I think mm-hmm. until at least well into the day on Wednesday, uh, tester was losing, and then those western Montana counties came in, and Tester actually ended up winning, I think, by three or four points, even though he was still down in the count on Wednesday. And that's something that happened in 2018 before we had all the COVID-relating voting problems that we have this year. So that may be a race that uh, we have to wait a week or so after the election to actually know who won, and we'll just have to be patient. Mm. And and God help us if we're waiting to hear the results so we'll know who controls the Senate. Oh, mercy. Imagine what a certain person would do on Twitter with that. But thank you, Tom. Well, I do do think Montana – I was just going to say I do think Montana, at least in terms of Senate control, is an icing-on-the-cake state for Democrats. I think Uh Democrats are going to end up winning – 
Colorado, Arizona, North Carolina, and Maine pretty clearly on the Senate front, and that Biden will win clearly. So Democrats will have 50 Senate seats and the vice presidency to give them control. And then when we're waiting to find out what happens in states like Montana and Georgia that might take a little bit longer, it's at least not going to be for control of the Senate. It's just going to be for figuring out how robust of a majority Democrats end up with. Great news from an ACC guy. So I I appreciate (laughs) you, Tom, and we'll send it back to David. David? Yes, well, Tom, thanks for appearing this week. And um, if people want to read your polls uh, and follow you on social media and whatnot before the next time you come on, how can they do that? Uh, Probably the best place to keep up with us is on Twitter at PPP Polls. Good deal. Well, Tom, thanks again, and keep the great polling work. And if you do one on Georgia 14 and uh, QAnon and member uh, Marjorie Green, <laughs> let us know. <laughs> okay. Will do. Good talking with y'all. Thank you so Good talking much. with you. Yeah. Yes. Well, that was Tom Jensen, public policy polling. I mean, always fascinating when he comes on. Guys, we got four minutes, and we know we were thinking about ta- or we want to talk about the um, what Donald Trump's doing to our postal system and how that's going to affect our elections. There is absolutely no way we can begin to cover this topic with any justice in four minutes. So let's go ahead and talk about uh, Ms. Kewanen, um Marjorie Green, who won the Republican nomination. <laughs> Uh, can we do her performance? Probably not. But, but I think we got a better chance to at least give a quick thought on all of the media attention she's got. Not the, you know, whirlwind of crazy that is her, but just the media attention. Uh, Catherine, you live outside the district, but you do live in the state. But what I saw was national. You could have lived up in Alaska. You could have lived out in California, and you still couldn't escape this win on Tuesday, could you? No. And it's so embarrassing. <laughs> it's just, you know, my friends from all over the country are posting on a Facebook. They talk about talked about it on Good Morning America. It's just like, oh my God, I wanted to hide my head. Hide my face. It's ridiculous. It's 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 sad. And embarrassing for Georgia. Yeah. Uh, Tim, I kind of think, you remember the old show, Name That Tune, and one person would be, I can name that song in seven notes. I can name it in six. I think this is kind of the other way. Well, I was the most conservative. Well, I'm even more conservative. I only believe in something even crazier. And when you keep one-upping, you finally get to Marjorie Taylor Greene. And here's the sad thing. There's going to be somebody that comes along in the next cycle or two that's crazier than her in the direction we're going. It seems that way. I believe I saw uh, that there are like 13 subscribers to this QAnon stuff that are running for federal. Some of them are going to get elected. By the way, you folks that are listening to us all over the country, uh, we we do have a candidate here by the name of Kevin Van Osdale. He was, he was on our show mm-hmm. just a couple of weeks ago. He's running a good, hard-fought campaign against her. Uh, that'll be our uh, final way to get rid of 
we can pull an upset, look him up on the internet, send him some money. We can do some virtual phone banking. Uh, yeah, yeah, any of that. Uh, um, just any anything you can to help. Uh, but uh, you know, we're we're not just gonna roll over and and take it. We're 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 gonna fight back. This is a conservative district. I this way, guys. Uh, back in 1974, it was the old 7th District then, and I saw a guy by the name of Larry McDonald beat a six-term congressman here, John Davis, and Larry McDonald was the national president of the John Birch Society, and he believed, among other things, that President Eisenhower was a communist. So, you know, I, I don't know what it is about this district that people are willing to put up with people like that going to Congress, but it it is just as embarrassing as it can get. Well, you got any adjectives to add, David? No, it it is embarrassing, and you're right. There is one more chance to stop her. Hopefully, Kevin can run a much more robust, uh, aggressive campaign against her than John Cowan did. Uh, I don't know that John Cowan could have run, but he sure could have run a better race than he did because he just was not – I think he understands that the district – or not the district, but the Republican Party really nationally loves this kind of craziness, or a good many of them do. And so maybe the the way I thought he should have campaigned was not the way he should have campaigned because I would have been like – this lady's not going to do anything productive because you can still believe in conservatism and and actually want to do productive things. I don't see how she's going to do anything productive because as soon as she won, she could have tempered her message, but she just doubled down on the crazy, um, you know, with the Twitter mm-hmm. storm. I, I think, you know, there's a good chance, and I'm going to say it now so it's on the record, Donald Trump loses in November the – Total right wing is going to need some people to to pick up that mantle. And Tim and Catherine, I said, you know, one way to get rid of her in two years, or I'm sorry, four years, is for her to seek higher office. I think this lady probably thinks, oh, she could, you know, be the next Donald Trump and run for president. So, you know, Michelle Bachman did it. Sarah Palin tried to, you know, you know, go, take that next level even after she ran unsuccessfully for VP. I think Marjorie Green, if she wins, she may try to move on up the ladder, and that may be the way uh, that she moves on out of this district because uh, I don't think she'd have the same appeal nationally. So I just want to put that on record real early on, and we'll give it four years to see if there's anything that manifests, maybe three years. Um, but until next week, uh, Ben DeCuzzivine, thanks again to Tom. Good night, everybody. Good night, y'all. Good night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force?